You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Apple, it hits an intraday record. The S&P closes in on its all-time highs after a dovish Fed signal. What does it mean for the tech rally we discuss? Plus, as GM's cruise slashes 24% of its workforce, we'll talk the state of the tech labor market. As more than 250,000 workers at tech companies of all sizes have been let go this year. Meanwhile, Adobe facing regulatory scrutiny over the company's subscription practices. We'll take a look at the FTC investigation and why the company's AI ambitions may take longer than expected. The other big mover this morning is Intel. It has given us details on its AI strategy. The stock up 3% or 2.5% now, it had been up as much as 5.5%. You have new Xeon server uh, chips. Those chips have been through two redesigns in the last year already. You also have uh, details around Gaudi 3, the AI accelerator. This is the GPU-CPU hybrid that basically is going to take on NVIDIA's H100. And you have Intel with this fighting talk saying that Gaudi 3 is going to be as good, if not better, than NVIDIA's H100, but it's nowhere to be seen yet. It doesn't come out until 2024, Caroline. But the battleground for AI, we were at AMD last week, uh, yeah. is heating up now. It really feels this end of the year is just a flurry to get as much of the innovation out the door as they possibly can to steal some of the market share, the overall hype that has been around AI. And as you say, some fighting talk coming from Pat Gelsinger, and they're like, the Gaudi 3 has the most to prove. But ultimately, how much of a win do you think is the fact that they'll be more efficient with some of these chips going to the data centers? What's interesting in Intel's case is that they basically are saying the market's going to be so big, there'll be something for everyone, us, NVIDIA, and AMD. But they're also focusing on PCs. Remember, that's their bread and butter. They're the biggest PC processor maker. And we're increasingly talking about on-device, right? The idea that the processing power of our laptops and our phones needs to be able to handle the inference side of a generative AI product. It needs to have the compute to perform, whether it's in airplane mode or not. And that seems to be a part of what Intel's discussing today. And I think you're so right to say this is about the rest of the ecosystem of chips. We keep talking about H100s, we keep sort of talking about the Gaudi 3s, but there's an awful lot of infrastructure play, an awful lot of other 
ultimately picks and shovels bolts and chips that need to go into all of this to ensure that the AI becomes a reality. Let's dig into that a little bit more with our next guest, Ed. Sylvia Jablonski, CEO, CIO at Defiance ETFs, who, you know, has been coming off what is an extraordinary day in terms of macro policy. And I'm interested if you can put that onto the micro of whether or not technology and the AI hype is still something to buy into at these points. Absolutely. So, you know, I think yesterday felt like Santa Claus came to town a little bit, right? <laughs> the markets like the outlook for next year. We're finally done with rate hikes. I think, you know, we'll have some restrictive policy, but but at least no more kind of like pounding on the gas to, to hike rates and, you know, kind of break the economy. So I think that sets tech up very well. And I do think that the next five to 10 years of technology are going to be supercomputing, quantum computing and AI. And we've talked so much this year about NVIDIA. You and I have talked so much about NVIDIA and AMD this year. And I think they're kind of the clear leaders in chips. But what I think will happen next year is now all of the floodgates will open. So Intel's going to come in. Companies like IonQ, like IBM, and you know the bigger components around AI, like data processing, supercomputing, 5G for the speed to make AI work, will all become tradable themes. And you're going to start getting you know, beyond the magnific Magnificent Seven for AI plays. And what's interesting, though, is how much the exuberance becomes real revenue. Now, NVIDIA has managed to prove that point to some extent, but I think of Adobe, we're going to dig into that story later in the show, but ultimately it's earnings not living up to the hype in terms of how quickly it can turn it into revenue into the bottom line. How much can an IBM, how much can quantum computing finally become some sort of revenue driver? Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think what happened a, a little bit with AI is that AI has been around for such a long time and there was a news flash around Microsoft this year and then AI became kind of the word of the year. But then it started to feel like a bubble and people started to equate it to, you know, meme stock mania and, you know, kind of kind of that world that happened and then it, it was kind of like thrown to the side a little bit, but now it's back because to your point, they're starting to show revenues. So I do think that everyone who sort of hitched the word AI onto their wagon is now going to have to prove it in, you know, Q1, Q2, probably actually Q4 as well, um, mm. earnings. So I do think that you're going to start seeing that play out and it is super important for companies like IBM. So IBM is a company that has a, a formed you know, quantum computer, and they're actually working with companies like Cleveland Clinic to have better outcomes in drug trials and things like this. So quantum computing is now actually becoming more of a reality, and it exists. Granted, you need a whole room the size of this and a lot of air conditioners to run it for a process now, but it's, it's, it's there, right? So five to ten years from now, you know, sky's the limit. Taking a look at the Defiance Quantum ETF, ticker QTUM, with which, of course, you are familiar. It's yours. And all of the names you've just mentioned are in there. What I find so interesting is how long does this keep going? Right, you look at the performance year to date up almost 40%. You have Lisa Sue of AMD saying that the market she saw as being $150 billion just in August is actually going to be $400 billion in 2027. How do you? keep this going. It's been ridiculous. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think what's interesting about, you know, this ETF and, you know, some of the names I mentioned is IBM, IonQ, you know, Arabella, some of the smaller types of companies in this index are not companies that we're talking about right now. We're talking about Microsoft, we're talking about Google, NVIDIA, AMD, maybe a little bit of other names in there. But what's going to happen is that you have a whole lot of small cap names in there. So, you know, why aren't we up 200%? Well, you're getting the performance of the large caps, but the small caps because of rates and, you know, kind of 
of new to the scene um, types of conditions are going to probably start to rally and, and pick up performance. So I do think that this is going to ride out as those smaller companies start to ge you know, generate revenues and then are kind of cushioned by the Google and the Microsoft that might end up returning five to 10% next year and not you know, triple digit for NVIDIAs and things like that. So I think having that well-balanced mix of names you're not thinking about gives it room to run. Sylvia, in the context of, of yesterday's Fed meeting, the eco data we've had of late, how isolated is what's happening in the AI industry, for want of a better descriptor, from what's actually happening in the global economy? Yeah, so I think I think that you know the AI industry is kind of almost being you know pigeonholed again into some of the mag magnificent seven and a couple of specific you know themes that are very sort of just like straight um, technology focused AI data processing things like that. But we don't really talk about you know the macro impact and how you know that will play into what's going on. So you know first um, the government is going to increase AI spending by you know billions of dollars next year. So there's going to be sort of money going into AI supercomputing artificial intelligence. The growth of AI is, is creating this need for cloud and cybersecurity. So that's going to increase in, you know, kind of macro business spending and things like this. And then I think just overall, you're finally going to start talking about how AI impacts different sectors. You know, healthcare, for example. Are we getting those better kind of like drug outcomes, um, surgical procedure outcomes, things like this. So I think the story is going to change more about how is AI making companies more efficient? And that started a little bit with digitalization of factories for missing workers. But I think that'll really continue to play out. I'm interested in, well, Ed says maybe the rally's been ridiculous when it comes to AI. <laughs> Some might have said that crypto's starting to look a bit ridiculous again. But it's managed to top out about shy of 45,000. There has been a roar in 2023. Will that continue? Is that all about macro? Is there anything idiosyncratic that you like there? Yeah, so I think that um, it, it, there's a little more room to run in crypto. And that's because I, I suspect, I can't predict the future, but I suspect that these approvals that we've kind of long awaited for are probably going to play out and then you know so you're just going to have kind of a shift of assets and in, in you know in some regard and new products are going to have to buy more buy more Bitcoin to create themselves so you'll you know you'll really have that that demand need but then once that comes out now all of a sudden these products become more institutionalized they're easier to trade you get better spreads you don't have to worry about kind of futures rolling contango or managing digital wallets and then I think the efficiency of all that starts to play out more so you know do I think it's going to double or triple. I don't know, but I do think that there's some solid runway left, particularly around that. Once we get that stamp, like this is approved, I think, you know, I think Bitcoin's going to run. All eyes on that spot, Bitcoin ETF. Sylvia Jabonski, who knows a thing or two about ETFs. She's, of course, with Defiance <laughs> ETFs. We thank her so much for being in the studio. Ed. All right, coming up on the program, 2023 was a brutal year for tech workers. We're going to be joined by the creator of the tech layoffs tracker, layoffs.fyi. That's coming up next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works across 500,000 apps and websites. 
Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk layoffs, because Cruise, the autonomous vehicle unit of General Motors, will lay off 24% of its workforce, around 900 people, according to a blog post by the company. These layoffs come just one day after Cruise also dismissed nine of its top executives. Now, the company has been trying to cut its costs in an effort to revamp the company after, of course, that crucial accident in which a cruise car dragged a pedestrian in October. Ed. Yeah, it's been a big story here in this city and for that company. And Cruise's layoffs are just the latest occurrence, piling onto this year's wave of layoffs in the tech sector. In total, more than 250,000 workers at tech companies, big and small, have been let go in 2023. That's according to the job tracker layoffs.fyi. Let's bring in the job tracker's creator, Roger Lee, to dig into that data. I think a good starting point is to ask, well, 250,000, What does that look like relative to prior years, prior periods of recession, prior periods of uh, economic pain? Well, the number is very high, even compared to last year when we first started seeing a wave of tech layoffs. 2023 is the highest number that we've seen to date. So 250,000 tech employees have been laid off so far this year. That's up from 165,000 in 2022. And uh, even in 2020, when we saw a wave of pandemic-related tech layoffs, that number was only about 80,000. So this year has been the worst uh, time in the past few years. What, if anything, do the companies that have, have done layoffs and cuts got in common, be it their reasons for doing so or, or their reaction in, in, to something? Well, the biggest reason for these tech layoffs has been uh, an over a correction of the overhiring that they did during the pandemic surge. You know, back in 2020 to 2021, we were in a very low interest rate environment. Tech companies were booming in demand from people staying at home and turning to tech services more and more. And so these companies were able to go on a hiring spree and they invested aggressively in initiatives that were speculative or wouldn't pay off for several years. Now, of course, the climate is entirely different. We're in a period of interest rate hikes, uh, and so that's causing these same companies to now cut back and correct for that overhiring from before. Okay, so now we're in talk of cuts. So does 2024 mean 
we rectify that, we see more exuberance, more hiring, or is it actually slower and more specific? Like, yes, we'll hire, but only in AI. Yeah, well, you know, after seeing actually some declines in layoffs over the course of this year, the past two months have marked an uptick in the tech layoffs. Uh, and uh, I, I do expect that to, to carry over to early next year because the year end is a natural time that can have to lay off as it coincides with annual budgeting. So uh, as companies in tech are taking stock of their full year performance and are looking ahead to 2024, they're finding that job cuts are necessary to improve profitability. So I do expect that this remains slow for the next few months. Um, although, as we look ahead to the rest of 2024, uh, hopefully, if interest rates do come down as is expected, that would mean uh, that the tech layoffs also finally subside. Roger, it's interesting, isn't it, that much of the so-called silver lining, when everyone was really talking about the big cuts that were being executed at the beginning of the year, everyone was like, well, more startups will be formed, more people will leave, they've got some cash in the bank, they'll be able to start up some other companies. Now it feels also that we're talking of, well, technology being necessary everywhere, particularly in this field of AI, and people going into banking sectors, going into different industry groups that need that sort of technology retail. I mean, there is an industry that it doesn't affect. Are people leaving tech more broadly? Yeah, you know, this, the rate of startup formation is affected because uh, fundraising is still hard to come by. Uh, we're in an era now where the cost of capital is much higher than in years past, and so startups are finding it harder to raise money uh, compared to before, and, and that does make it harder for these laid-off tech employees to stay in tech or to go start their own company. Uh, and so you are finding that more and more folks are going to other industries. Um, uh, either, you know, folks on the business side, like sales people recruiters, are, are leaving tech entirely because they can find better roles in other industries. Uh, since the tech downturn has not broadly affected what's going on in the uh, rest of the economy, where unemployment is still very, very uh, favorable. Um, and then even engineers uh, are also looking at other options, too, outside of tech, because of the reasons you said. Uh, tech is everywhere, and uh, yeah. every industry now has a need to uh, invest in technology. Yeah, Roger, I found it fascinating that the, that the principal driver is, is undoing the over-exuberance of hiring from the pandemic period. And I don't know about Caroline, but I just had this weird deja vu because I felt yeah. like we told that story a year ago. Yeah. So why are these companies doing cuts 12 months later on the same rationale? Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, the pendulum. And we hope the yeah. pendulum doesn't swing completely the other direction once more. Roger Lee, afraid we have to leave it there, but thank you so much, creator of layoffs.fyi. French billionaire, Vincent Bolloré, well, he's considering a split of the media and entertainment empire he effectively controls. Bloomberg sources say the breakup would allow for Vivendi to split into several companies in order to better take advantage of each unit's strength. Shares, they've been surging on the heels of that report, Ed. Let's continue that story with Bloomberg's Benoit Bertolot out in Paris. Go out to Paris with our correspondent who in the last two hours has broken even more news on Vivendi. Let's start with the, the, the basic premise of what Vincent Bellore is doing here. Yeah, a very unexpected move really announced late at night, at night yesterday um, of, of the news that he would break up uh, or explore the breaking up of his company in three different units. Um, that would be one unit for pay TV. He's building a sort of Netflix-like 
uh, streaming service out of pay TV operators across Europe. So that's Canal Plus. Another unit would be the ad group Avas. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a good ad group valued between 2 billion and 3 billion uh, euros by investors, but it's much smaller than Pierre's Publicis, WPP, Omnicom. So that would be a standalone company as well, both listed company, and that would be a third uh, company, an investment company holding the shares of various groups that the, the Bolloré and, and Vivendi group has, uh, including Lagardère, which is a publishing giant uh, encompassing uh, the third book publisher in the world, which is uh, Hachette. It also has mm -hmm. travel retail uh, operations. So a complete split of the group uh, he tried to build for the past decade uh, would, be, would be explored now. I mean, we've also broken news that maybe he thinks about selling a stake in the former foe monopoly of Italy, Telecom Italia. It's, it's also fascinating. And paint the picture of Bolore for us. Because what's so interesting in your story is basically Arna, the Puy Fontaine, the CEO of Vivendi, almost doesn't get a mention here. This is about a, a sort of a Rupert Murdoch figure of France. Mm. Yeah, we've compared him to, to Robert Murdoch uh, uh, in the past. He's, like him, a media mogul. He's pretty conservative in, in the line of his media uh, outlets. Uh, he's 71 years old. Officially, he retired uh, last year, so he's not the CEO of, of, or chairman of the groups we're talking about. But he's said to be really calling the shots for any big moves like this, and, and it's really the writing on the wall. He's been known as a corporate raider. Uh, he's made a lot of surprising moves uh, with his companies. For example, the, the listing of Universal Music Group um, two years ago, which, which really is sort of an inspiration for what's happening now. So, so yeah, is at the age of, retri of retiring, clearly. He has his two older sons, uh, Cyril and Yannick, uh, both heads of Bolloré um, and Vivendi. But right. clearly, like, he, it seems he has a lot, uh, some moves still to make. All right, Bloomberg's Benoit Bettelot out in Paris on that story. Coming up here on the program, we're going to have all the details on the FTC's probe into Adobe subscription cancellation rules. Drives a lot of you mad, I see on social media. We're going to be joined by Tech Policy Institute senior fellow Sarah Olam. That's coming up next from San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. And Caroline Hyde right here in New York. Let's get a check on these markets because we are dictated by macro polls at the moment. We had the Federal Reserve yesterday, of course, signaling that rate cuts, they are to come in 2024. The retail sales number also just showing the resilience of this U.S. economy, the fact that we saw 0.3% growth in retail sales in November rather than a contraction. We also, of course, got jobless claims looking good. This is a strong economy. Do we see a rotation, therefore? Money's still going into the Nasdaq, though, tentatively. And this is the Nasdaq 100. What's interesting is you're getting more love for the well, less, more left out in what has been a ramp in 2023, the small caps, of course. And let's move on and see what's happening on the individual stock movers of choice, though, at the moment. And Apple did hit an intraday high at one point, so there was some love from the big tech and still those magnificent seven names. Adobe, interesting outlier. We're off by what, almost 6%. Big move, worse performing than Nasdaq 100, Ed. A lot of this to do with numbers that didn't live up to expectations in terms of their earnings. Still going to see double-digit growth in revenue, but the market wanted to see more, particularly in digital media, but I think also the ongoing narrative around the fact that they're getting pushed back on the Figma deal, and of course the FTC, the fact that they are too difficult to cancel, and that's a key story that we want to dig in on. Yeah, so Adobe's been cooperating with the FTC in a civil investigation since 2022, which looks exactly that. Policies around cancelling subscriptions. It's driven many of you mad, we know. You tell us on social media. But it's an interesting disclosure that Adobe had in that filing last night. Let's bring in Tech Policy Institute senior fellow Sarah O'Lam joining us here on the programme. Your reaction to that FTC look at at Adobe's practices around cancelling subscriptions and products and services? Sure. Well, it was news yesterday in Adobe's 8K filing um, that wasn't really known before that, that the FTC has an investigative demand um, before it, and that in November 2023, last month, that it would enter into negotiations to possibly impose penalties. Um, they're, they're using this um, authority under Section 5A, Unfair and Deceptive Practices, um, but also the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, ROSCA. It's a statute from 2010. Um, folks might be um, reminded of the the use of this law as well when FTC sued Amazon earlier this year, um, also for Prime subscription practices. 
So yeah. this is ongoing. Um, it's also related to a rulemaking proceeding, a click to cancel negative option rule proceeding from earlier this year as well. So the FTC seems to be uh, ramping up its investigations of subscription practices. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised. President Joe Biden, of course, it was back in March, I think, really talking about the need for the ability to sign on to be as easy as the ability to cancel for these online subscriptions, digital subscriptions. And, you know, when it costs up to $700 a year for an Adobe subscription, no wonder they want to ensure that it doesn't drag on in some way. Do you think the FTC is sort of going to get more broad with this? Is it always going to be looking for settlements, for example, that could have significant monetary costs as Adobe lines? Well, um, in January, in the new year, it's going to have a, a hearing, a public hearing about this negative option rule, which is um, its way of saying that they want to make a rule across all companies that to make it easier to cancel, the click to cancel. Um, so it's an ongoing um, open proceeding for the FTC. What's interesting about yesterday's announcement was that um, they are sending these investigative demands to public companies um, with outside of the rulemaking process. Um, and so I think that might be causing some um, stock market um, effects um, that, that they're getting all these investigative demands. Um, and yeah. what's interesting is, um, yeah, the Figma acquisition is still um, up in the air. It's still under review at the Justice Department. So Adobe has a few things happening with the FTC right now and, and Justice Department. And so does some other companies. I mean, the FTC has got busy. So have actually global regulators towards the end of the year. You're seeing, what, the FTC looking at the nature of Microsoft's investment in OpenAI. The EU is looking at a similar, so while well, the UK indeed is looking at a similar sort of relationship between Microsoft and OpenAI. We've got the EU looking in many a field of regulatory oversight. We think of Alphabet's impact earlier this week. Sarah, are regulators just having enough with some of these business models? Well, what makes it easy for regulators is that they can send a letter, an investigative demand, um, pretty costlessly. I mean, they prepare it, but they send it, and then the companies have to do a lot to respond and, and be on notice. And so um, it depends on your view of how broad the FTC's Section 5A Unfair and Deceptive Practices Authority is, if they're going beyond the scope of their authority or um, if they're within um, the scope of their authority. And so that's that's a really good question right now about this FTC in particular, which is um, a little bit more um, active than, than prior FTCs. Well, I appreciate Caroline's question too, because throughout the cadence of this year, I think the only thing we can agree on is there's been a lot of antitrust and regulatory news when it comes to big tech. Net-net, Sarah, who came out on top at the end of 2023, the regulators or the technology companies? Well, you know, it, it slows down business, um, but folks would say that maybe it is the job of these government regulators to make it harder or to protect consumers. And so, um, you know, you hope that there is that balance of being pro-consumer and pro-investment, especially for American companies, which are, um, you know, making up the most of big tech um, in, in the markets and in globally. And so um, hopefully that they can strike that balance. Some of that, is, as Caro pointed out, was in the context of M&A, right? You think about like Microsoft Activision or maybe now Microsoft's stake in OpenAI. In 2024, 
what will be the area of focus, do you think, from regulators as they look at technology companies? Well, I think what's really important for you know us in the policy arena and Congress and the regulators um, is to, to know that um, any government involvement slows d things down, and so there might be you know good good reasons for caution and for policy making, but there's also you know a big um, important value in letting companies innovate and merge and acquire each other and then learn that way. See see what happens in the market. So um, I, you know, I would recommend um, the regulators to, to make sure that we're accelerating growth and not slowing, slowing it down. Well said, Sarah Olam. Great to have you. Senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Great to have your expertise. Meanwhile, let's just stick with Adobe for a moment because, well, we know that the shares are under pressure also because of its lukewarm outlook for sales in 2024. It seemed to signal a potential that the AI boost, particularly when it comes to its product Farfly, is going to take longer than expected to actually boost the bottom line. Wall Street still expects Adobe to be one of the first software giants to benefit from generative AI. Now let's stick with AI and look at just all the industries that it's going to transform, most likely healthcare. I sat down with Bessemer Ventures partners, Steve Krauss, to just talk about what he's seeing in that, the impact so far. Take a listen. We at Bessemer have made a, a really large commitment to AI, and I would say that healthcare is actually one of the industries where it's going to be most relevant, most impactful. And the reason for that is, you know, healthcare is the most laborious, inefficient industry in the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also 30% of the world's data. And so if you think about that combination, what, what is artificial intelligence good at? It's good at automating tasks in, in, in all parts of our economy, but we think in healthcare it's going to be really impactful. Basically, everywhere from how the payment in healthcare is administered on the back end, how healthcare is delivered you know, by clinicians in terms of clinical decision support, for instance, AI can be very impactful. And then also how drugs are designed and delivered to improve human health. And so we think all aspects of the healthcare economy are going to be revolutionized by AI. The problem with 2023 is suddenly we felt that AI was this bright, new, shiny object, and ultimately artificial intelligence has been in an unsexy topic for years. And I'm interested as to therefore for you, was it about starting to amplify the AI story amid the companies you've already backed? Or is it finding new companies that are being built out of this sudden leap change that we did see with generative AI? I, I think it's both. Uh, we've actually been investing, you're right, it's been around for a long time, these technologies. And we've actually been investing in five plus years in terms of how these technologies are applied to healthcare. And I mentioned some of the ways that that could be. And so I think there's going to be plenty of, of new opportunities that come out over the next decade of how AI can be applied to healthcare. But I also think for existing companies, as you point out, uh, I talked about how healthcare is a very laborious industry. A lot of it's services, you know, humans doing tasks that actually can be automated, that are pretty mundane, but are very important. And so we actually think AI is going to shift services to more software, like in, in their administration and how how care is delivered. What has it done to the valuation story of the companies that you're looking to invest in or already have them? Well, AI is a hot space, and um, I think you know the valuations in the AI sector are, are, are pretty robust. But I, we also think the opportunities equally as robust. And it's if you think about it, you know, in my career in venture, there have been several platform changes. You know, moving from on-premise software to the cloud, that was a huge, huge shift in our economy and created hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of, of, of in innovation entrepreneurship. The iPhone, right? Huge moment. AI is also a huge moment. So while you know valuations are 
heady, I actually think the opportunity is almost uncapped, and so we're excited. Um, and that applies to healthcare AI companies too. And maybe even some exits. I mean, talk to us about when you're thinking of Bessemer Ventures, I think of well, some of the unbelievable companies that have been gone public through the Pinterest that you've been sort of back yes. from early days and, and some of the other Twilio's, LinkedIn's. Who are they in your current source of, of portfolio companies that you've invested in? Where do we see those exits coming from? Yeah, I, I think it's um, the AI uh, wave, we're early in it. And so I think those exits will come in, in you know, five, 10 years. But right now, uh, one area that we've invested in is just the, the digitization of the healthcare economy. Again, it's often been uh, experience where people get their health care in person, but we saw that COVID uh, actually unlocked the whole idea of telehealth. And so we think all throughout uh, the delivery of care, whether it be companies like Headspace Health or Hinge Health, uh, Headspace is obviously focused on mental health care, which, as you know, has been an area where, frankly, there's a lack of supply of clinicians in, in, in the U.S. and in the world. And so a, a company like Headspace that delivers uh, really important high quality mental health care to all if you have a phone an iphone again um, that's a huge huge opportunity that um, we think is going to run for a long time and and also a company like hinge which is doing the same when it comes to back or knee or hip pain being able to deliver that care like physical therapy you don't have to go to see your physical therapist in person you can actually do that care via your iphone again a huge market opportunity and we think those are the companies that we're going to see you know get to exits in the, in the near term. You're based on the East Coast, but I'm in Boston. Yes. Where are those opportunities coming from? Where are these companies being built at the moment, do you think, that you're going to be looking to in 2024? I, you know, we at Bessemer have long believed that, you know, Silicon Valley is obviously a hotbed of, of innovation, but Boston's a hotbed of, of biopharmaceutical and healthcare innovation, New York. But frankly, we've invested all over the United States and all over the globe. We have offices worldwide, and so we actually think entrepreneurs can be anywhere. And, and frankly, one of the things that, you know, remote work taught us is that, you, you know, entrepreneurs are everywhere and people can work everywhere. And so we've invested in everywhere from Minneapolis to North Carolina to London, Israel, um, and all across the globe. And so I, I don't think entrepreneurs are limited in where they live. I think it's the, 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 that spirit lives everywhere and, and the possibilities are everywhere. Steve Krauser from Bessemer Venture Partners. Venture-backed startups in the lab-grown meat space have received billions of dollars in the last decade. But the companies aren't actually delivering on what was initially forecast for mainstream adoption. In the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week, we dive deep into one of the industry's biggest players, Upside Foods. Joining us now is one of the co-authors of that piece, Bloomberg's Priya Anand. There is a stigma with lab-grown anything. Uh, tell us about your, your article in the magazine. What, what is the main conclusion that, that it comes to? These companies, especially Upside Foods, promised that they would deliver a center of plate sort of style of meat that is a equal substitute to folks who enjoy eating meat, um, different from the plant-based industry where um, you know it's not necessarily one-to-one uh, -one and it's not necessarily real meat. There are other components, uh, vegetables and other things like that mixed in. And what has become clear is over the years, after hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for Upside Foods in particular, the company is still struggling to make the technology work to actually deliver what it has promised over the years. Well, like, that one basic, though, is, is it even revenue generating? In other words, does it have a meat product? lab grown that it sells anywhere right now the company is supplying small amounts to a restaurant very 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 small amounts and it's far away from being able to make a similar product at scale 
for supermarkets. And for years, the promise has been that these kinds of companies will, by 2021, enter supermarkets like Costco. And the idea was people love eating meat. Why should we slaughter more animals for it? What ultimately has been perhaps an exuberance about the timetable here. Is there any reality that we'll start to see lab-grown meat on our plates more quickly? Because you have this beautiful part of the story where you're saying that basically people are having to sort of dig out of test tubes and make one very small, tiny piece of chicken at the moment right. when they should be making much larger amounts of a feel. That's right. There are a number of companies in this space that say they're going to use animal cells to create sort of hybrid products that are partly plant-based, partly this lab-grown meat to make a plant-based meatball taste more like actual chicken or actual beef, for example. Um, and these companies say that they will in a couple of years have these sort of hybrid products available. But at the same time, the process has been slow moving and many of the largest companies are still only in these small-scale tasting events. And in the case of Upside Foods, we've learned that the company has yet to actually be producing at scale. Priya, fascinating. Go read the story. It's really sort of a history of what is exuberance in this particular space faced with reality. Priya Anand, we thank you so much. Meanwhile, look, we're turning to another story that's gone viral that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet. Elon Musk is starting his own university, according to tax filings for the billionaire's latest charity called The Foundation. Now, Tesla CEO is planning to start a university in Austin. New institution, seeded with roughly $100 million gift from Musk, will start with a STEM-focused primary and secondary school, and then move on to later start education. He's actually not the first time he started education for kids, right? Yeah, he's actually set up a school for his children years ago in Texas. This is the next level, Elon Musk the philanthropist. <laughs> What's he going to call it? Is it going to have something to do with X? Maybe it has something to do with being proximity to his space company, I think. <laughs> Convenience is everything. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Check out the pod wherever you get your pods, Apple and on Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.